0: There we're um, we're in a new series here this this January looking at the the parables of Jesus and uh, each each week we're looking at a different parable, a different story that uh, Jesus told. And, you know, whatever you might think about Jesus, one thing that all of us have to recognize is that he is without question the most significant religious leader in all of human history. And because of that, that kind of far reaching impact that, that Jesus has had on the world, um, we're looking and considering both what he taught, these ideas in Scripture that we have recorded in the, in the canonical Gospels. But, but in this series, one thing we're kind of looking at that, that's a little different is also how he taught. His, his method of communicating, which was in many ways kind of unique. Because, see, Jesus didn't just teach to kind of pass on information. It wasn't a matter of just disseminating facts. It wasn't merely philosophy, though Jesus had philosophical ideas. He's not just doing that sort of thing. Jesus taught in order to transform lives. Um, And he taught about God. He taught about the human heart. He taught about our future. He taught about sexuality. He taught about what relationships look like. He taught about the soul. He taught about how we interact with coworkers he taught, I mean he, he taught about everything in life that mattered most and so last week we looked at this idea when we were talking about kind of the how of Jesus communicates. We, we were saying um, research has told us that when when you have a conversation with someone, the minute it 's over, and we kind of use this uh, pie chart here to look at this that if this represents all the content. In a a conversation you have, the second you walk away from your conversation, 50% of the conversation will be remembered. The other 50% is just lost. You've you've forgotten. The second you walk away. And researchers also tell us that when they measure eight hours later, that 20% of what was said in that conversation, you will remember. And, of course, the researcher also always wants to know, okay, well, like what makes up that 20%? You know, what is it that is remembered and taken away from a conversation? And research tells us that it's it's three things. It's stories, illustrations, and quotes. Those are the three things that you'll remember after you leave a conversation typically. And so Jesus taught both to be remembered. That gets to kind of his method of, of uh, communicating here. But he also taught... And he, he appealed to the imagination of people. And by imagination, I mean through story. He went at them through this avenue of story, which was mo- it's more than just a quote, it's more than an illustration, but these sort of extended illustrations where he invited his hearers to kind of stand inside the house of the story and said, Now look out at the world through the windows of this story, of this house that I've built or created in this way. And why I think he did it is because he wanted to get past those watchful dragons. He wanted to get past those natural defenses that many of us have who, man, oh yeah, I've heard what Jesus says about pride. Oh yeah, that's, oh yeah, I know what the Bible says about, you know, forgiveness. Yeah, it's important, right? Oh yeah, I know what the Bible says about how to have healthy relationships. And it's like, oh yeah, I've heard that a million times. I know that stuff. And so just saying, it, hey, be a forgiving person. Be someone who doesn't, you know, take what doesn't belong to you. Be the kind of person who's who's willing to go back even after someone offends you and offer. Oh, sure. But he goes in with story, and he kind of, it's almost subversive. It's like he goes around those, oh, yeah, sure, sure, I've heard. And he does it by saying, let me tell you a story. And then I go, oh, I like stories. (laughs) Right? And so then I step into the story, and all of a sudden, I'm hearing and thinking about all these ideas kind of in a a new way in a new way. Um, and so it kind of gets past, you know, cliches. Oftentimes, I've, I've got a lot of cliches in my life about, you know, religious cliches. And, and, and this is Jesus' ingenious method of stepping around them. Um, Donald Coggin, who was an archbishop of Canterbury, said, he once said that the, the longest journey in life is the journey from the head to the heart. See, what he was saying is that if, if you don't bridge that gap, then you, you will amputate or you will sever um, the head from, from feelings. And so you just have kind of mere intellect. You know, you're just at that level of, of kind of mere brute facts, ideas, or you'll amputate the feelings from the head, and your feelings are like totally disconnected from reality. Your feelings are totally disconnected from truth. And the genius of Jesus' teaching, I would suggest, is that he uses parables, extended stories, in order to, again, get past those watchful dragons and, and force us to, to look at God and what he's saying and life and all this sort of thing in a, in a totally new way. And in the words of a, this uh, 17th century French philosopher who we've talked about before, Blaise Pascal, At that moment, the mind catches fire and it plunges into the heart. Isn't that a cool picture? And that's what Jesus wants to do with story. He wants to get to the head, transform it, and then set on a fire and plunge it into the heart. And that's the power of story. So if you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 19 through 31. This is the story, this parable of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. It'll be on the screens too if you don't have your Bibles. Verse 19, Jesus says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple, fine linen, lived in luxury and every day. And at his gate was, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat even what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried <clears throat> in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up, saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. while Lazarus received bad things. But now... He's in the comfort here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They've got Moses. The prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, at, at first glance, this story of Jesus seems to almost be saying, okay, life stinks, life's unfair, don't worry about it. In the afterlife, God will kind of even everything out, right? You had a bad life here, it'll get better later, that sort of thing. Or it almost seems to be saying, um, money's bad, rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven. Okay. Well, clearly that can't be for some reasons in the parable itself. But even aside from that, you look at the you look at the rest of scripture and this that's not what Jesus teaches. That's not what Paul teaches. This this idea that it's by grace through faith. It has nothing to do with what you do. It's not about being rich or being poor. But that does kind of seem to initially be what he's talking about. And again, I would suggest it's not. And we'll talk about that here in the parable um, and I want to get to what I think Jesus is really saying in this parable, and that it's not primarily about being wealthy or being or being poor but but first, let me say just a uh, a word here about um, an assumption that that Jesus is kind of hitting real quickly in his hearers before he goes on with this story um, Jesus's audience not not all of them but uh a good portion of them would have had the, been kind of steeped in this belief that um, riches, you're doing well here, is the result of being obedient to God. And conversely, suffering is kind of the consequences and the paycheck of, of you know, evil, something you've done bad, secret sin in your life, not, not, not having enough faith, whatever you might call it. Um, if you remember, there's another story in the Gospels. Even even Jesus' you know, disciples, remember, they're they're going through this town, and, and some of them get at Jesus' attention. They go, hey, see that blind guy? Who sinned, him or his parents? And he goes, neither one. It's, that's not it. But people often work on that assumption, right? Bad things happen. Oh, it must be because you've done something, or someone in your life, or you didn't believe, or something's wrong in that way. So in this story, Jesus completely reverses kind of the conventional expectations concerning how, how this whole God's blessing things work. Um, and see, today I would suggest, you know, we might look at that and we go, oh, isn't that kind of you know, antiquated? Isn't that silly? Isn't that? I would suggest that today, this theology is still around, but it's in a more dangerous form. Um, it's in a more insidious form in our day and age. Let me, uh, let me write a word for you up here. You may have, you may have heard of this. There's a there's a movement out there, a theology called word faith theology or the the word faith movement. Uh, you might know it as the prosperity gospel, or as the the health and wealth movement. Now there there's kind of a pop culture new agey counterpart to it. Uh, some of you have probably heard of the book called The Secret. It, remember this was like real big. If you watched Oprah. She was like champion this a couple years ago. Uh, this guy wrote the book called The Secret, and it's all about the law of attraction. And this is kind of the, it's not really secular because it's still a little religious, but Eastern kind of counterpart to this movement. The idea that whatever the force is, the supreme force, God, or whatever, is more like a force, and you can kind of tap into it and manipulate it by, by kind of formulaic beliefs or thoughts or actions, okay? You control it by, by what you do. And you can tap in or you can miss out, but you kind of got to know the secrets of how to do it. It's a formulaic approach to religion as opposed to kind of a relational approach. And see, the claim with, with word-faith theology, which again, this is on Christian television, this is, this is in Christian churches oftentimes, the claim is that if, uh, if you just have enough faith um, and, and there's no sin in your life, then, then God will heal you of all your sicknesses. You can live in perfect health, never have a headache, I mean anything at all, uh, and he will grant you material wealth. You'll be healthy, and you'll be rich as well. And see, the idea, uh, if you follow kind of the formula of it, is you've got to have enough faith. And you express that faith. If you really believe something, then you act in accordance with it. So you got to speak it. you got to say it. There's, there's, there's power in words, so you've got to say it. And you have to act in accordance with it so that it looks like you really believe it. Because if you really believed it, you would do certain things in your life, and then God is kind of required; he has to, he's bound to give you these things because you're doing the formula right is the idea, and so God becomes kind of a sugar daddy. He's like a he's like a cosmic butler, um, and he serves you rather than understanding him as the cosmic king and father whom we serve as his, as his adopted children. So this has more to do, I would suggest, with with American greed than with, with, with the actual gospel. Um, listen to the story. Just to give you an idea, listen to the story that, that's told by one positive confession teacher. Um, and all of you would know his name if I said it. I won't say it. Prominent pastor in our country. Reaches tens and tens of thousands every single Sunday. And he was explaining... Um, he explained that if you understand these laws, this formula correctly... That, that God gives preferential treatment, is his language, to his followers. Um, he states that when he and his wife fly, doing missions work and all this stuff to different parts of the world, when they fly on, on airlines, um, that uh, they often get upgraded to first class because of God blessing them, because of kind of they, they really know God. Listen to his words Quote, I'd go up there, he's talking about the uh, airline counter, I'd go up there knowing that I have an advantage. I've got the favor of God. When I go up there, I just smile real big, be real friendly. And the whole time under my breath, I'd be saying, this is the positive confession, Father, I thank you that I have your favor. I thank you that you're causing me to stand out in the crowd. I thank you that your light is shining down on me. He says, and, and my wife will tell you that time after time, for no reason at all, they'd bump us up to first class. See, that's the favor of God. That's God's favor giving us preferential treatment. Now, if you've ever cracked the Bible and you've read this transcultural message of what it means to follow Christ in this upside-down kingdom and to lose our life to find it, this is pure American greed. This has nothing to do with Scripture. And yet, this is what is peddled to millions of people on television and in many churches, this word-faith theology, and it's something that Jesus radically deconstructs even at this one second In this parable. And see, this is a big deal. I will talk to people often who will say, ah, this is theological hair splitting. Okay. So maybe it's not. No, 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 no. There are, there are consequences to this kind of theology. I grew up in a church, which was a part of this fellowship, left it in the early 80s and fully embraced word theology. And I saw firsthand what happened. I saw young people I knew who who physical consequences, they died. Because they were told, if you have faith, you will act in accordance with it. Well, I have to take these pills, or I can, oh, you have to have faith. Stop taking pills. Okay, physical consequences. There, there were emotional consequences. Because see, it, this idea of you know what I, I, I've been believing God for my health and it's not happening, and well, you must not be believing hard enough. Oh yeah, okay, I got to believe harder. Got to believe, you know, uh, or maybe these secrets sin in your life, and so they live in this sense of shame and guilt. Oh, I've just not because God's provided it. It's his will that you're totally healthy. The problem's you. So you live in this sense of shame, emotional consequence. There are financial consequences. Because oftentimes what's said is it's a sort of give-to-get message. You give, you you plant the seed, and God will give you a hundredfold blessing. Of course, it's usually the one who's teaching, who they give. And they just put themselves in even more dire financial circumstances. And finally, there's spiritual consequences. I know many people to this day who go, you know, God's promises, they just don't work. Of course, because of the promises he didn't make. But, and so they just throw their hands up. And they go, I'm giving up on this whole God baloney. This is junk. And they walk out of the back door of the church. And they say, because I've been reading my Bible. I've been doing this. I've been doing the formula. I've been believing. I've been speaking. And it's not happening. So God's not real. And people leave it, live in this place. There are real consequences to our theology. That's why this is so stinking important, you guys. This is not theological hair-splitting. It has a real impact in our lives. And so, now, even, even though Jesus demolishes in this parable this idea that material blessings are necessarily the result of, of you having a right relationship with God in some way, or you living your life perfectly, um, he's also not saying that it's evil to have material possessions. Or that poverty is the result of holiness. So here's here's the big question of this parable. We look at we got Lazarus, okay, this poor guy went to heaven. We've got rich man and he goes to Hades and he's, and there's a separation. So the real question is, um, what's the real difference between these two men? If it's not their money, if it's not their health, and here's what I would suggest. I think there's a clue to this if you think of this almost like a riddle parables in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a word in the Hebrew that, that kind of has an equivalent of being a riddle. It doesn't mean the idea that it's tricky. It's the idea that you have to figure out what what the author is saying. And what's really interesting here is that um, of of all the parables that Jesus told, and Jesus, you know, he's four, some people count 40, 46, depending on, you know, all the different Gospels, and is that the same parables or a little different one. So about 40 plus. Of all the parables he told, this is the only one that he gives a proper name to anyone. See, it's always the father came out, or the sower was there, or the farmer, or the mother, or the son, or the owner, or the employee. There's never a, a, a proper name mentioned except this one, Lazarus. Lazarus is the only guy we see who, who in any of these parables who actually has a proper name. Um, he only does here, so then the obvious counterpoint in this story is now he he doesn 't do it with the other guy right the rich man he he doesn 't give him a name why well first ask this question why why did the rich man go to hell uh well it was because of insider trading right you know he was he was he was a bad guy with his money or you know he he was a part of some sort of crime syndicate or he killed Aunt Jenny to get her you know her money uh no. There's, there's no indication of any foul play in in how he got his money so so look at it this way the name Lazarus means sorry that's kind of running together I thought I had more room there can you read that probably not God is my help that That's what the name Lazarus means. God is my help. Um, That could be my salvation. He's my hope. He's my source. He's my sense of meaning. He's he's the point at which I will say I I will rotate my life around that. See, what sends you to hell is not being rich. What sends you to hell is not being poor. It is not violence. It's not insider trading. It's it's not any of those pieces. What, what sends a person to hell, the only thing that sends a person to hell, is to make anything but God your help. To make anything but God that center place of saying, that is my help in life. See, the reason the rich man didn't have a name is that all he was is a rich man. That's what he was. See, if, if you make riches your help... Is what this story is. If you make riches your point of life, if you make it your salvation, if it becomes your God, if, if, if your riches, your things become your identity, then that's all you are as a rich man. And so you take away the riches and there's nothing left of you, right? Because that became who you were. Remember verse 25? Listen to verse 25 of this. Um, Jesus has Abraham replies, but um, Abraham replied, Son, remember in your lifetime you had your good things. Now, in philosoph- the philosophers, you go back and all the, all the great philosophers of history, always talked about one thing. They would always say, "What is there was this uh, thing they wanted to know about, and they argued about. They wanted to know what was the, in Latin they called it the sumum bonum. It means highest good. What, what is the sumum bonum in life? What, what is the highest thing in life? What is it that, that I should make the point of my life? What should be the goal? If I'm an arrow, what should be the target that I'm going toward? What, what is the best thing? What is the summum bonum in life? And see, the rich man chose his summum bonum. It was riches. Remember? Lazarus says, or Abraham says, you had your good things. You, were re- you, you had your summum bonum, you were reaching for it. See, whatever you make your help in this idea or this language becomes who you are. And when you take that thing away, you end up with no name like the rich man. See, Lazarus had a name, but you end up with no name other than what you made your help because there's nothing left of you. Now, you guys have probably seen this in people, right? You know people who, man, they live for maybe their beauty, you know, they they have the ability to tr- attract others and, and and that is what they live for or maybe it's their career I mean they make that the center point and that is you know everything else gets sacrificed for that or maybe it's roles maybe it's being a mother or being a father like that's what that's what they live for it's what they talk about all the time uh, it's their it's their reputation maybe um, their social standing and you listen to them and they, they talk about it incessantly. Like, almost every conversation you have with them, it's all about that. They can't go anywhere else. Uh, uh, I mean, they can't move away from that circle. They just kind of rotate around that topic constantly, and they can't leave it. That is their sumum bonum in life. And you take that away from him or her, or something goes wrong with it. Uh, your children go wrong. They stop listening. You, all of a sudden, you're not the star mother. And they say, I've got no reason to live right that was my that that was my summum bonum that was my center point in life and if you say that about anything in life that that's that's your help that's that's your treasure that's your sumum bonum that's your name that is your identity it's at the, if if you lost it you would lose everything you would be in utter despair because you've lost the very center of who you are and if you base your identity on anything else but god you will be a hollow person because there will be no self left. And so you can see this even now, can't you, in this life? Um, look at, think about your life. Look, look at your little treasures in life. Um, what, what happens when they're in jeopardy? Okay? How do you feel? Um, how, how rattled do you get? How much anxiety do you feel? when that thing that maybe you're thinking about right now, that's, that's kind of your sumum bonum in life, when that's in question, when that's in doubt, when that's teetering, how anxious do you feel in your life? And see, here's kind of one of the tests. If you say, man, I don't, I don't know what, you know, you know. do I have things that really compete with God for that place of my summum bonum? Ask the question, what are you most anxious about in life? Ask the question, what do you, what do you think about the majority? The, what's kind of on your mind when you're idle? when you're driving in the car, when music shut off, when things are quiet. What, what's, what's the track that's kind of just playing? Because that's probably, it might give you a clue to say, that, that may be something I need to be aware of. I need to, I need to watch out. Now, is there anything wrong with being a mother? Is there anything wrong with having a career? Is there anything wrong with being beautiful? No, not at all. But when those things become your highest good, when they become the focal point around which you rotate your whole life, when they become your help, in this way, see because when that happens, you become a person of just surfaces only. There's there's no one there that's that's always underneath the circumstances. There's no one there that's always kind of true or underneath all those uh, externals. Regardless of if you're attractive, if if you lose your success, if your job goes away, if your children rebel, if whatever happens, um, regardless of how they turn out. And I want to suggest that this also explains Jesus' description of hell. Because that's a piece kind of we haven't gotten to, right? This, this by the way, this is a I was going to mention this earlier. This is a painting that we have in our prayer room. We had this fabulous, uh, very talented artist who just on his own said, I'd like to paint some pictures. And he chose various different parables. You might have seen him as you've gone into this prayer room. And this was this artist's imagination picture uh, of this story that is being painted um, but again, I think understanding this and understanding what Jesus is talking about when, when he talks about the idea of hell helps us grasp this idea that basically hell starts here. That, 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 that what, what sin does in our life is sort of those first steps of moving toward exclusion from God and others and the self-absorption and how it works. So kind of think, think with me through this here. See, when, when this life is done, Jesus is telling us, at that at that point of singularity. The moment you stop breathing, everything's taken away from you. It's all gone, right? You know, we have the phrase, you can't take it with you. Everything's taken away from you at that moment of singularity when you die. And all you have left is God himself. He says, that's the one thing that's eternal. That's the one thing that doesn't go away. That's the one thing you can't lose. That's all you can potentially have left. See, when this life is done, everything's taken away. That's all we have. And if we have God... We have a name. We have personhood. We have an identity. And God restores, he said, all those good things. Do you remember that line if you've ever read much of the Gospels? Jesus says, this is kind of a famous verse. He says, seek first, what? The kingdom of God, his righteousness, and then yeah, all the other things are added. Those come secondary. You love first things first, you get second things second. You love second things first, you miss them both. And he's saying, I am the sumum bonum in life. I am the focal point. I am the thing around which your entire life is to rotate. See, this parable tells us that if you don't have God in eternity, all you are is a nameless person gnawing yourself in the dark. You're just full of self-pity, full of emptiness, and that emptiness Jesus is showing starts here. We start our place right here. See the reason Jesus chooses the metaphor of fire you ever you ever wondered about that? like how come in the Bible so often when, you know when it talks about hell, it uses the picture of fire, and a lot of people point and say well you know it's it doesn't seem to be it's it's more of a metaphorical term because it also says it's darkest darkness. Well, you have fire, what do you have? you got light, so it can't be darkest darkest so these are clearly metaphors, these are pictures, just like when Jesus speaks of eternity, heaven, he, he uses picture like gold and things. Oh, oh yeah, that's worth a lot. That has value. That's something that doesn't, doesn't tarnish. He's using pictures to refer to things that we can't even quite get our minds around in so many ways. But, but why is it that Jesus here, and so often in the places of the Bible, use the picture, the metaphor of fire to tell what, what that picture of hell, of separation from God, is finally about? And I would suggest it's one word. And write this word down. The word... Because I think this is at the heart of what this whole thing's about. Disintegration. Disintegration. See, when something is put into a fire, it doesn't cease to exist, does it? But it breaks down. The things that, you know, that connected it, the chemicals, the things that uh, made it what it was, the bonds are, are broken by fire. It falls into pieces, uh, what some of it vaporizes, um, you know, some of it breaks down into chemicals, that sort of thing. But things lose their integration. They lose their coherence in a fire. Fire disintegrates. See, this is why uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Listen to what the author says. Colossians 1, 17, speaking of Jesus as the summa bonum focal point in life, says this. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together, or some translations say, in him all things consist. He is the integral point of everything. Everything holds together because of him. This is saying that God and God alone is is the source of coherence in human life. See, this is why when we sin, when we move away from God's presence, we begin to break down. What this is saying is that spiritually speaking, the absence of God is a raging fire, and the further I move away from him, the more disintegration I experience. just as the closer I get to him, the more integration, the more true self I find. You remember that song that we sing sometimes we sing this on the weekend, we didn't sing it tonight, but you know that song that says better and it's uh um it's borrowing from a psalm it says Better is one day in your house. You know that one? Better is one day in your courts than what? Than a thousand elsewhere. Why is that? Because it doesn't matter how many I have somewhere else, I disintegrate. I fall apart. I lose self. I lose identity. I become this cosmic shell. And with God, I have integration. I find coherence. I find meaning. I find center. And all of a sudden, I know it is what it is that I'm rotating around in my life. See, God says, "Don't misrepresent the truth. Right? Don't don't lie. Don't don't take things from others without permission. Don't don't steal. Don't use and abuse people. You give your money generously. And see, when we violate these laws, we start to see breakdown. You see, I mean, you see this? We see breakdown internally. I see breakdown when I'm when I'm blowing. I see breakdown in my family. When I sin against. My wife, my closest friends, when I lie to them, when I withhold, right? I, I start to see the breakdown of relationship, and it's, it's not working right in my own life. And see, the more proud that I become, the more I center my life around myself, you know, as I become kind of the center of my whole universe, it gets harder to love people. It gets harder for me to get outside of myself. It gets harder for me to even think accurately about what's going on around me. Um, distortion begins. Have you ever seen people who, 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 who kind of just say, you know, everything is going wrong. Everyone's against me. Right? Nothing, nothing's going right for me. Uh, every, everything, it's like they're not seeing. everyone's treating me poorly. It's, you know, injustice, this sort of victim mentality. This is the beginning of hell. That's the beginning of the breakdown of this idea that I am an integrated being because I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm contorting around myself. Now, note in this parable, even, even in hell, you'll notice this, which is kind of, even in hell, notice that the rich man still views Lazarus as a slave. Abraham, tell him to come over here and dip his finger in water, put it on my toe. He's still treating Lazarus, like he's a nobody, his thoughts and his views on life are that much more contorted as they were in eternity, and there's even kind of an implied idea that he's blaming God for not knowing enough. Because remember, at the end of the parable, he says, uh, uh, "You know, send Lazarus back." And you know, no, they got they got scripture, they got the Bible. Well, you know, these were Jews; they got the Hebrew Bible. He goes, "No, no, no," but if they saw some reason that, then they would believe. See, the assumption is I didn't have I didn't have enough proof. You should have given me more evidence. It's your fault, guy blaming. He's still he's becoming that much more of this victim blaming other people' mentality, even there. And this parable tells us that the disintegrating work of sin that begins here and see deep beneath the surface, like with the rich man, no one saw it. Everyone thought this guy was good. Everyone thought he was you know a kind person, a good person, good with God, good with himself, good with others. But this disintegration begins here, deep beneath the surface. No one can see it. And it doesn't come out until eternity. In eternity, it gets its fruition, its fulfillment. See, Lazarus didn't go to heaven because he was poor and sick. Lazarus went to heaven because he took his troubles, he took his suffering, his hurt, his difficulty, to God, who became his help. Lazarus became a real person. He got a name that lasted beyond all those things when they were taken away. He knew who he was. He knew what he was, regardless of whether he was rich or poor. There there was a core to Lazarus that that was buoyant, no matter what came in his life. So he had a great name. See, though you couldn't see it here, he became great and when, when eternity came, that greatness exploded. And in the same way, when eternity overtook the rich man, that emptiness exploded in his life, and he became nothing but a rich man, but without his riches. And there was no one left at all. It was a nameless man. Here's my question tonight. Who are you? I ask that question myself. Who, who am I? Um, are you nothing but a wealthy person? Are you nothing but a mother? Are you nothing but a teacher? Are you nothing but a, a banker or a student or a pastor or whatever? Is that, is that really your identity? Again, nothing wrong with those things. But is that all you are? Is that your help?
1: There's this, there's this
0: statement, if you, if you remember, the verse that, that, that we read during worship, Psalm 61, starts out by David saying, You, God, are my God, earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you. He goes on, you know, my whole world, you know, it's, it's everything about you. And when he gets to the very end, verse 6 is, On my bed I remember you, I think, through, I think about you through the watches of the night. In verse 7 he says, Because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. Because you are my help. He realized what I was. Whatever it is that I make my help in life is my identity. It's my center. And when the toughest things come in my life, when the hardest moments come, when my job is at risk, when my relationships seem in question, when my health just seems like it is not going to get better, when someone has left me when I'm broken. Do I still, am I buoyant? Do I still have a buoyancy? I mean, there's still tears, there's hurt, there's anger. But do I have a buoyancy in my life? Not when I don't make God my help. See, Jesus, the God-man, he had infinite wealth. He was the true rich man. And had he held on to that, we would have died in our spiritual poverty. That was the choice that he had to make. But Jesus, he gave up his treasures in heaven in order to make you his treasure. And if you see that, if if you take that into your life, then you will make Him your treasure. And when you see Him dying in that way, realizing what, what what He gave up for you, how much He loves you, you are able to respond and say, I will make you my treasure. I will make you my help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we confess just first of all, God, we start out just by a moment of confession where... Maybe I'll just speak for myself. I start out with a moment of confession to just say, there are, there are numerous times in my day that if I were totally honest, I would have to say, I am not making you my help. I'm making something else my help. Good things, but the good things are the easiest substitutes for God. And Father, I just confess that at first. And I ask you, God, I, I, I want to live that life where, where, where you are the center. You are the thing that, around which my life orbits. And God, if there's anyone here who who would say, I'm, I'm beginning just this sort of cosmic superficiality, that, that, that's just beginning to eat out my insides, God, would you gut us? Would you change us? Would you make us new? God, would you be our help? Would you be our summum bonum? Our highest good? And Father, as we think about the things in our life which are not there, God. Put us in relationship with others in small groups, in classes, in friendships, in, in ways that we can connect where, where we're in community with others and in that setting we can be brutally honest, we can be transparent, we can talk about some of the things that we make our help that, that is not you. And through prayer and friendship we can find that, that healing and we can allow you to do surgery. Make us new, that we desire to say, this is our prayer this week as we go out. May all week long, would you remind us, God, and may it be true of us, that we can say every day when something comes, and man, it just rattles our cage, that we can say, God, God, I need you to be my help right now, because you're all I've got. You're all I can depend on. I want a name. Thank you that you give us new names. We call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, followers of Jesus. Thank you for that in your name. We love you, God. We pray this all in his powerful and matchless name. Amen. Amen. Hey, uh, thank you so much, you guys, for being here tonight. Our prayer team is going to be up front here. Um, Can we pray for you if you have something going on in your life? That's just an honor for us to be able to do. Community is important. Another piece of community is just kind of hanging out being together. If you've got kids, and children, we say this all the time, feel free to get them, bring them back, but just hang out. We've got snacks in the back. Oh, and P.S., I lied last week unintentionally. There was no Broncos cake. Some of you told me that, like like I intentionally lied, which I didn't. Um, That was a moment of, not a moment of disintegration, because I wasn't really lying. It was just, um, I was ignorant. But we have um, those fantastic cupcakes that we had last week. Some were butter, butter, butter cream, no, Buttercream cupcakes, something like that. They're back there, and they're good. Coffee stuff. So just hang out, you guys. Be together. We'll see you guys next week. Love you.